17. Uh, most of you know that I have an older brother that's, he's 14 months old, or 14, yeah, 14 months, I'm going to see 14 years, no, 14 months older than me, and, uh, you know, we, we grew up in a time when one of the big treats uh, for young people was going to the movies, and uh, we didn't live very far from downtown Ocala where, you know, the two movie theaters were and that sort of thing. So it wasn't uncommon for us to, to go to the movies. And the movies that we enjoyed the very most were what we called the ancient movies. You know, about Ben-Hur and, and you know, and, 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 you know those, those sorts of things. We just loved it, the ancient movies. So I've always been somewhat of an ancient history buff. Uh, but the neat thing about it is you're looking at a person today that has actually walked in the same places that the Apostle Paul did. I'll tell you about that in a few minutes a little bit more. Uh, we are turning in, uh, in uh, chapter 17 through verses 16 through 24, ta- uh, Paul's time in Athens. I've been to Athens, and it was great. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown gods. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. It is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of you, your own poets, have said. We are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought to not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands that all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, 
he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were uh, Dionysius, the Ariacobite, and a woman named Damaris, and others uh, with them. So Paul and Silas and the others that are with him, the brethren that are with him, them, they've made way to Athens, the great city of the Greeks. By far the largest city in Greece. That was well known in the Mediterranean world as being a place of knowledge, a place of thought, a place of philosophy, a place of intellect. Paul's spirit in Athens was provoked within him because he moved around the city. It was a city that was full of idols. And let me tell you today, the city of Athens is a city full of the ruins of temples and idols. They're remnants of much of this today. Because you've all heard of the Acropolis, that's, it's a mountain, it's not a really big mountain, but they flattened off the top of it, and that's where the Parthenon was built. And at one time it housed the idol of the pagan god Athena. There actually was a sculpture there that he, he made his living making idols. One after the other, and, and, and there was that idol of Athena. There was also another idol of Athena that was on the, the Parthenon, also, on the Acropolis also, that uh, got lost in antiquity. But they say when it was there that you could actually see, see it from miles and miles and miles out from the sea. Athens was noted to be a great city of knowledge and intellect and philosophy. All of these so-called gods were man-made. We understand that. And we know that it flows forth from the understanding that's inside every person that has ever uh, breathed air, and that is there, there indeed is a God. That we know that their understanding of that God was corrupted and bent and twisted and false. Countless gods they had. I'm not sure that any of them even knew the names of all of them. <laughs> Zeus, the king of the gods, Hera, who was uh, Zeus's sister, considered to be the goddess of marriage, Athena, the, the patron goddess of Athens, Apollo, Aramis, Poseidon, the god of the sea, Hermes, who was a son of Zeus and Ares, that the Areopagus that we've mentioned already is actually named after him. It's also called Mars Hill, by the way, if I forget to tell you later. 
There was a place where the Athenian high council met. But Aphrodite, the goddess of love, Hephaestus, there's a temple of Hephaestus for Hephaestus in Athens itself, the god of fire and metal forging, Eros, the god of desire. Dionysius, the god of wine and drama and ecstasy. And we could go on and on and on. A city that was full of idols that, and their attempt of the Athenians was to cover every base that they could possibly think of. They had a god for just about everything you can imagine. So you can understand that Paul's... <laughs> Efforts were going to be surprising for these polytheists. I mean, the, the one thing that's interesting is this, is they understand that there is a God. They just grossly misunderstand who that God is and how that God is and what that God is like. And the reality is this, is we know that there is an understanding that there's a God embedded in the heart of every human that has ever lived. Everybody understands that God exists. No exceptions. But very often through the history of man, the understanding of who that God is and what that God is like has been grossly warped and twisted and bent by the sinfulness of people's hearts. You can understand that his task was a difficult one to convince them all that they are wrong about their understanding of this God and to paint for them a picture that's accurate of the God who really is. Paul had some conversations with the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. There was a uh, visitor to Athens one time who said this, it was easier to find a God in Athens than to find a man. They had a God for everything. But two, two streams of philosophy had emerged over the years. One was called Epicureanism and the other Stoicism. They had become the main forms of Greek slash Athenian philosophy and had been for centuries. The Epicureans believed that the chief cause of human misery were fear of what happens after death and frustrated desires for the super, super, superfluous while alive. Epicurus, whom the Epicureanism was named after, was a Greek philosopher. He established his garden, which was literally a vegetable garden, near Plato's Academy in Athens. And he set out to demolish the fear of death that, that hounded people by arguing that the soul is composed of atoms that simply dissolve at death. In other words, we're here for a while, but when we die, we're just gone, period. We disappear from existence entirely. Therefore, because that is true, there's nothing to be feared or expected at death. 
death was the absolute end of us. The Stoics, on the other hand, founded by Zeno, he studied under Aristotle before evolving his own philosophy, and he taught logic and physics and ethics. The essence of Stoicism was that nothing happens by chance. All things are predetermined by the laws of the cosmos. There's nothing higher than the natural universe of which we are a part, and we must live in harmony with it. They did not believe in an individual afterlife. Neither did the Epicureans. They believed that this was it. Once you're done here, you're done forever. Now I want to challenge all of us with the idea this morning that one of the key factors of effective evangelism is to start a point that both parties agree on. Now granted, there's going to be times when you're going to wonder if you can come up with any idea that you actually agree with this person about. <laughs> But let me tell you, if you approach evangelism like that, it's going to open doors for you that otherwise would be closed. In other words, it's a point of contact that you can make with that person. And this is what Paul does. They agree that God, there's a God that exists. They just believe it happens to be multiple gods. That's his starting point. Now, Paul has work cut out for him when it comes to the Athenians, but there was an advantage too, and that was at the very least they admitted that God existed. They just grossly misunderstood that God. So they take him to the Areopagus, which is also called, it's a Roman name for it, it's Mars Hill, if you've heard that. It's, it's a, they're, they're little mountains all over, you know, the city of, uh, of Athens, not just the Acropolis, but there are others. And, and what you're going to find on virtually every one of them, there was some t type of idol or temple to some pagan god. But it's also where the Athenian court convened. And so now he's standing before the Athenian court. When he makes his case, he makes his argument. And they, they brought him there because he had stirred up their interest in what he was saying. They wanted to hear more. May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. In other words, they have never, ever in their whole life heard anything like what Paul is saying. It's all absolute new to them. Notice here that the Athenians were not threatened by new ideas are people of different thinking and thoughts. There's a sense in which these people, maybe above just about everybody else, that were seeking. They were just seeking and finding wrong things. 
Paul says to them, he said, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. Paul, and Paul sees that as an inroad into their world. They wanted to cover their bases so much that just in case there was a God that they were not aware of and they did not want to offend that God, they built a shrine for that God. Let me tell you this, God has instilled, ingrained an understanding of his existence in every person that has ever breathed air. It is as much of our DNA as everything else about us is. The problem is this, a large percentage of people spend their whole lifetime depressing what they ultimately understand is true. They just do not want to go there. They don't want the accountability they know is going to come. They want to live their life the way they want to live their life. They don't want something like religion to get in the way of it. I mean, some people look upon the Athenians and think, boy, that was a hard nut to crack. But what I'm telling you is you and I have a far harder nut to crack. That just like Paul, we have to find inroads. In other words, points of common understanding to converse with unbelievers without just going in and just dumping the gospel on top of them. Because let me tell you, the average person today in the United States is far away from us than, any, than, than we've ever experienced in the history of our country. But as we do evangelism, we've got to find points of common understanding. That will open doors for us, just like this opens the door for Paul. He doesn't come in with guns blasting and cannons firing. The nice thing about Paul is that he's attempting to evangelize people who are at least open-minded to some extent. A lot of people in the culture, the, the woke culture that's emerging today are not open-minded at all. It makes our job even more difficult. You won't find them asking people to come and speak to them and tell them what they know. The woke culture today wants nothing less than to shut us up and shut us down, period. They are hostile to our way of thinking and living. What I'm telling you is this, is the old ways of evangelism that work maybe are not going to work. But we have to find ways to penetrate into this dark, deep, crazy culture. 
But Paul, in his brilliance, you know, he was a very brilliant person. And I've heard estimates of his IQ, you know, 130 plus at least, you know, that, he was a genius, supposedly. But what Paul is saying to them is, you understand that there is God? Let me tell you about that God. That God is far more than you ever thought, far more than you ever anticipated. That God is everything. And he also knows this. That there is implanted in every person a knowledge of God's existence. There are people who will try to convince you that they don't believe there's a God and this, that, and the other, and whatever. But what I'm telling you, that is, this is a lie from the pit of hell. God is implanted in every person an understanding of his existence. But the problem with the Athenians is they tried to put him in a box. And God will not be put in a box by anybody. He's not only the God of Athens, he is the God, Lord of heaven and earth. Who does not live in temple made by human hands. The universe, in essence, is the temple of God. What I'm telling you is this, is one of the things that we need to understand, and that is all those people that we've tried to witness to, relatives, friends, strangers, and stuff like that, they ultimately, deep down inside, whether they want to admit it or not, understand that God is. This God made the world and everything in it by the way, implied, including you. There's some evangelism expressions that I hear sometimes that make me want to cringe. Have you ever heard people say, I made Jesus the Lord of my life? Ever heard people say that? Please tell me I'm not by myself. I've heard that a number of times. That I did it. I made him my Lord. You need to understand something. That is accepting Jesus Christ as Lord. Does not make him Lord. He is Lord. Whether you do that or not. No one has ever made him Lord. He just simply is Lord. You know, I understand what people are getting at and whatever, but let me tell you, it just like, really? God saved you, and you want to take credit for it. God did everything necessary to bring you to a point of salvation, and you have to have a part in it. You can't admit that he did it. 
Many people today completely misunderstand the biblical meaning and concept of repentance. If you were to ask the average churchgoer today, what does repentance mean? Basically, I would imagine it's going to be something about feeling sorry for your sins. That's certainly part of it, but the problem is it's not the whole picture. In the Greek, it makes it very clear that it involves something else, and that is with willful intention of turning away from it. In other words, having a passion, a desire to be done with sin, period. A longing, in a sense, to be done with sin. Looking forward to the day when you will finally be able to say, I will sin no more. Paul says that this one true God commands all people everywhere, including everyone in Paul's current Greek audience, to repent. To turn from one's sins, to change one's ways. Shorter Catechism, question 87. What is repentance unto life? You understand that Westminster Confession is not the Bible, right? It's not like there's three testaments and it's the last one. But what it is is a theological statement in regard to all of these things that surround a proper understanding of God and who he is. It's a helpful, useful tool to us. But this is how the Shorter Catechism defines repentance. It is a saving grace. Now what does that mean? Well, it has saving power. But what does the grace mean? It means undeserved favor. Whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin... So it's, in, it's absolutely essential that you know that you are a sinner. And at the same time, you have an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. And what do you do as a result? With grief and hatred of sin, you turn from it unto God with full purpose of an endeavor after new O. Now that's a mouthful. But let me ask you something. How much is ongoing repentance a part of your current walk with Jesus Christ? Are you continuing in a state of repentance as you walk with Christ? Or is it something like you think you did when you first became a believer and it was done with at that time? And the answer to that is just, if that's where you're at, you're not where you need to be. Let me tell you, as you grow in Christ, you will see your sin more clearly. 
And that sin is going to drive you constantly and continually back to the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Jesus where is where you need to be and where I need to be. But my question for you today, is repentance still a part of your picture at all? And if it is, is it still a big part of your picture? Or is it just something you do on occasion? Paul says to the Athenians that God doesn't ask, he doesn't suggest that he, he doesn't even inquire. He, he, he commands, commands all people to repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. And how do we know that these things that Paul is saying are for certain and true? Because he has given assurance to all by raising Jesus from the dead. The resurrection is the key to all of it. Without the resurrection, we all understand this, there is no gospel. There certainly is no saving gospel. But notice here, he doesn't say that God asks or he pleads or he suggests. He commands it. And he has every right to do that. Every right. Just remember this, that there are a lot of things that you know, bear a lot of weight on the thing, but it's the resurrection of Christ that puts the nail in the coffin. If you take the resurrection out, then there is no gospel. It falls apart completely. Paul will write later on, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. In other words, I'm wasting my time. I've committed my life to nonsense. I've endured hardship. I've endured persecution for no reason at all. I'm just a sadomasochist, I guess. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. If, Christ, uh, in, if in Christ we have hope in this life, only we are, of all people, most to be pitied. You know what Paul is saying there? He's saying that if we are wrong in what we believe, that of everybody we have been wronger than anybody else. So much so that we, we deserve to be pitied by everyone. Because we have believed and, and, and suck our, our, our life into meaningless nothingness. 
we have wasted our life if Christ has not been raised from the dead. Why is the, 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 the resurrection so important? Because it proves, it's the proof that the gospel is real. Because in the resurrection, God does something that everyone knows man is not capable of doing. To bring the dead back to life. Someone that's been dead for days back to life. That proposition in itself caused some of the Athenians to believe that Paul was completely discredited. You're going to experience that too if you ever do an evangelism. But others were giving serious consideration to it and they wanted to hear more about it. You see here, you know, Paul did not lay it all out there in other words he doesn't give them every every little jot and tittle of the gospel in this first conversations he, ha he has with these people he finds one point and he hones in on that one point to get them moving in the direction that they want to hear the rest of it I'm sorry I'll give you point pins at you Some believed and they joined him. I love Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22. What does he say? I have become all things to all people that I by all means might save some. In other words, the Paul that you get on Monday may not be exactly the same Paul you get on Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday or Friday. He adjusts himself according to the opportunity that lays before him. You know, I want you to understand something. You know, next to Jesus, we're talking about the greatest and most effective evangelist that ever lived by a long shot. And he's showing us how you do it effectively I mean it really is amazing I've walked where Paul walked you know when I did that it had no meaning for me at all you know I knew I knew a little bit about stuff and I heard this apostle Paul and and whatever, to, but, but to, to be in the same place and to see some of the same things that are still here today and whatever. And, and let me tell you, when I was there, I wasn't a believer, so it was meaningless to me. But as I look back upon it now, it is just, this is cool. I think God brought me there for a reason. Long before he actually captured my heart and my mind and my soul. He was working in me even then. 
Because he knew this day would come when I would be preaching through this passage and I would be able to relate to this city in, the, in, in, in a way that probably... Has anybody else here been to Athens? Cool, right, Lynn? Do you ever get a chance? You need to go. It's ancient history at the best, at the most. Amen. I don't know what else to say.